When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, I'm turning it off now. Um, uh, we're all just Mikey, silly. What's, before we go anywhere else, Mikey, what's 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 up with your profile picture in here? <laughs> Big Yoshi. Big Yoshi. Big Yoshi. Is that like your spirit animal? I don't know. I don't really know. I, I, it, it's hella funny to me. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's definitely funny. <laughs> I don't know why even. But I've actually... Fuck, I think I joined a... I joined something. Oh, I, dude, I joined a radio show with my Zoom name as Big Yoshi. And I was like, <laughs> please forgive me. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I definitely... Man, I definitely at one point in like April of 2020 logged on to a class as like Joe Exotic or something. something oh, like dude, that. do y'all do y'all know Chad from SNL, Pete Davidson's character? Yeah, I joined Maybe? a fucking interview with my ba- and so I used to have game nights every Friday, and I would make my background like literally like Shrek with a huge dick or like you know whatever (laughs) oh god oh god and i joined a call and thank god it wasn't shrek but i joined a call with chad in the background just with his like (laughs) mouth open you know like mouth breathing looking how stupid and i i was like oh and i tried to cover it with my head and like kind of change it while i was kind of distracting her and she was like well uh what uh what is that and she's like move your head (laughs) And I was like, I moved my head. And I was like, it's Chad from SNL. <laughs> and luckily she was like, oh, my daughters think that's hilarious. And I was like, good. Because <laughs> I need this job. Yikes. And I got it. Yikes. Yeah. Oh, that's dope. <laughs> Shout out to the University of Washington. But also not. Mostly nice. not. Mostly in not. several ways. So. But still shouts out. Yeah. But the A's. The A's boys. Is that what you were? You were on the verge of saying something that sounded important when we went to Big yeah. Oh, I think stuff. Thank you. It's my government name. I think stuff is overrated. Is my hot take. Uh, it has become yeah oversaturated, yeah. and these stuff models are like I think a lot of the time not good. Like mm-hmm. they can't get changeups right. They can't nope. get cutters right. Um. They don't always get the other pitches right. I don't know. I think yep. they're not helpful. Oviedo, I, we'll get to it uh, in the article spotlight. But yes, 
anyway. they miss really badly on some pitchers. So that's that's all I had to say. Yeah. I feel like I feel like they're a little more useful, like looking at changes in pitches and pitch properties on almost a game to game basis instead of just mushing it all together into one like cumulative broad thing. I don't think that's helpful at all. Yeah, I agree. I wish I mean, and we can do that with looking at changes in pitch traits, too. So it's like. I don't know. I think teams probably, and by probably, I mean definitely, have their own proprietary stuff models, but I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm so, I think Lance Brodstowski does a really good job of going over this, these things on Twitter, but otherwise I'm like, I don't, I don't need this. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's that. the thing with me too, is that I don't often feel like I need it doesn't really tell me much especially like, when it's what just, it, yeah i feel like sometimes it's just easy to notice plus pitches when you're like watching games <laughs> that boy has that dog in him that's all i need yeah but like you just have the savant <laughs> feed open and you're watching a game you know and you get the instant feedback and like pay attention to the hitter the catcher you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't remember if I did this at either game that I went to with y'all, but I I love watching games and like having Savant open like while I'm at the game and being like, nice. It's, yeah. CSW or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Um, but the A's. The A's. Yeah, you think the A's have pitch models? <laughs> uh, no. Maybe when Farhan was there, and then they were like, yeah, we don't need those anymore. <clears throat> I forgot Farhan was there. I don't know, man. Yeah, he was. How they have fallen. Man. Yeah. How they were I just feel sad. It really does yeah, suck. sad for them. I mean, I think at this point, they're kind of underrated as an analytics. Like, obviously, they have the, the kind of, like, uh, the names, you know, like Billy Bean. But I think in terms of like. Uh, people think they're really. Not a good front office now, and I think they are. But are not, you know, they're not like leading the pack now, and they also don't spend. Um, yeah, they have no resources. Right. So it's like, I don't know. What's his name? Mason Miller? Like. That doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. I think the lack but of spending no, and resources... They, they I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about this, but I feel like the lack of spending and resources also does translate into their front office. You know, they're not being a team like the Astros or the Dodgers. Mm -hmm. They're just snapping up every every analyst in sight. I mean, if he's cheaping yeah. out in the roster like that to starve him by, he's starve him dry. He's probably doing the same thing in the front office. They actually, like, their owner is worth... Uh... Easy. I think it's two billion. Over two billion. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's one of like the three or four wealthiest owners in the league, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, you know, it's more than the Mariners. I think the Mariners are around a billion or maybe less. Which, like, I, I, all these fuckers are rich to me, and I don't, I don't care. Yeah. But uh, just in terms of like, you know, they've been branded as this small market baseball team. They're I mean, it's first of all, it's the East Bay. It's really not. And second, you know, 
their their owners do have money to spend. So uh, I, we I think also should be clear about what we're talking about because maybe people haven't uh, read the news, and that is that the A's have um, their ownership have purchased land on like I don't know the south strip of las vegas i don't know what that means because i've never been to vegas and never will go but uh it it does um uh indicate that they are intensifying their um hopes or intentions rather to move to las vegas which sucks ass yeah fucking vegas man of all places just the deadest end of american culture it's not a, it's not exactly a done deal yet. There is, you know, the whole mm-hmm. they're getting a lot of government funding and that has not 100% gone through yet. And honestly, great good on the people of Oakland and their elected officials too for holding their ground on that, for not for saying fuck you, build a stadium with your own money if you want it. No. And obviously obviously the result is <laughs> is not good, but I don't know. I suspect it really does suck. I suspect baseball will be back there and honestly, like I said, just some some respect there. I'll give them that. As much as the outcome sucks. I feel like how do like how does the players union and like fans, so you know, the people who aren't the owners that are involved in the sport, how do they make it so that an owner can't own a team if they're not serious about winning like what is there a realm of possibilities where that happens ever yeah i mean i feel like i feel like the other part of this and, and i think this just mean like this really just means that they should yeah maybe have been forced to change ownership but one thing about this conversation is like the current like o.co is probably the worst stadium in all of american sports right um i think the only rival is probably a drop which is pretty terrible i don't know if you guys have been there before but it's i think mikey have you been to o.co i haven't uh okay you haven't all right and Hayes, have you been to either of them yeah, I went to I went to Odako all the way back in two thousand seven or so. Sat in the outfield, mm-hmm. and it was it was pretty bad. I've also seen the um, the financial numbers on how much they're spending on upkeep, and they're spending they're spending less on upkeep per year than almost any publicly run stadium in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a giant multi purpose stadium, I can actually I can pull up the numbers at some point, but it's like only a few million a year. It's kind of absurd, and I don't know how long. That's been the thing, but they're not putting any money into that place at all. Yeah, the owner... And nor should they. You know, fuck, fuck using public money on that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The And clearly. It, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. The, literally, like, what was it? The toilets were overflowing into the dugouts, no? In 2016? Yeah. I remember that, and, yeah. I just shrugged that <laughs> off. And then there's the the possum uh, uh, last week. <laughs> possum in the walls, yo, in the press box, <laughs> yo. It's like it's this annoying thing where, like, by all rights, of course, the A's 
should be paying for upgrades because they they profit off of it they use it you know most of the year and of course they can afford it obviously that's not going to happen because they love milking everything for every dollar they can get so you're left with a situation where you don't want a rotting ballpark it's practically very difficult you know impossible almost to get the owner to actually pay for it but then like i just said i don't want you spending 15 million dollars of public money a year to upkeep that place and that's kind yeah. of defeating the purpose too like just like you know giving them maybe not as much as giving them like a single 400 billion or four sorry <laughs> that's 400 billion is a lot of money uh 400 million dollar like windfall to build a new stadium you know are you really for a stadium that's it's not like you're making it that much better it's it's a just a tough shitty situation for everyone who likes oakland baseball yeah for sure uh yeah i mean it's it sucks i i think you know one thing with all this that i'm thinking about is um you know moving from the east bay where like there's hella latina folks there's hella black folks um and I don't know, like if if you go to a Mariners game and you go to like a game at O.co, like the vibe is incredibly different because of, you know, the demographics of the people who are going to the game um, and moving it to Las Vegas, where just like in terms of capital, like it is, you know, there's so much money flowing through that place. And it's just such a to me, like such a at least in sports, such a soulless place. Um, one thing that's kind of funny in the Fangraphs article is it talks about Fisher, uh, the the owner being worth, you know, over $2 billion and saying uh, it's gained not through any particular abundance of ingenuity or uh, effort of labor, but through inheritance from his parents who founded the Gap. Uh, there's, It's not possible <laughs> to be a billionaire gained through labor. Um so I just, I just thought that that was kind of a a funny little tidbit. But yeah, man, like I think Oakland is one of the cooler cities in MLB to, you know, to be able to like uh if you're going to a game to like go around the city, eat some food, whatever. And now they're going to Las Vegas, which is like I think one of the least interesting places to me so this is all a bummer and there there are a lot of oakland fans that are really dedicated to their team and now this is the second oakland team to potentially move to um las vegas so just shitty and it's not an accident yes yeah <laughs> yep um well said do you guys want to Move on to Mad Max. Oh. Yeah, we can do that. I just want to cap off that that Oakland discussion by maybe with a little bit of optimism, as much as you mm. know Vegas steal their second team from him in in as many years as that. You know, like for all the reasons that you just said, it's a great baseball town. Oakland has a ton of culture. The Bay can absolutely support two teams and should. I think baseball will make its way back to Oakland sooner or later. You know, the, the NFL has moved through. There's precedent. The NFL has moved in and out of Oakland a zillion times. You know, it took, what, 10 years for Seattle to get the Mariners after the pi pilots did that, you know, absconded to, to Milwaukee after a year. And, you know, the 
Washington has gotten the second MLB has gotten two extra MLB teams after both of the first two iterations of the Senators ended up moving. Um, you know, there's already talk of the NHL going back into Atlanta, which is objectively stupid as hell. So, you know, it, it's it, it's bad, but um, I don't know. Maybe that maybe there is a little a little hope somewhere down the line. I don't know. Can hang on. I think. That, I think the last thing really that I have is I I really hope, uh, you know, in the spirit of baseball coming back, and obviously this is with the assumption that they're going to move, uh, I hope that they change their name and that they become the Las Vegas something else because, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, really good Oakland A's baseball teams that have played, a lot of history with that team, and I hope that um, a different team, if they do move, um, brings it to the They don't deserve East Bay. to claim that. Vegas yeah, doesn't exactly. deserve to claim that, you know? All right. Well, on that, uh, on that joyous note, uh, we can get to another joyous subject, which is, as you said, Mad Max being being max it's always him <laughs> love him. yeah he likes to push the limits so basically what happened is mad max got tossed and he's <laughs> been suspended it, for <laughs> for for 10 games so he's gonna miss two starts he is appealing so i wonder if he's just trying to get it down to one but basically he was going back and forth with bob Cousy, i think is his name um and Really not giving Bob, in. Bob Cousy, the the Hall of Wait, Fame Bob Cousy. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Doug Cousy. Yeah. Bill Cousy. Bill Cousy. Bill Cousy. Bill Cousy. <laughs> <laughs> See, like Bob to me, it out. Ba- that's, that's, basketball that's didn't start existing from like the eighties on. So, um, yeah. That's that's great. Uh, I I can also I can set the stage like with the the sequence of the events because it's it's relatively um there's a lot that was going on, um <clears throat> essentially the first thing that happened so and I should say first that uh, Scherzer's actually dropped his appeal and he's done so because he said something uh, along the lines of uh, I was looking for a, a, a third party arbiter. Um, and also, yeah, just like something objective, uh, they are not doing that. So I'm just going to drop my appeal because MLB is biased. Uh, sound logic, I think. I think he's also like probably dropping it because uh, <laughs> I think he was probably using a lot of tack. Um, and I don't know what this process could possibly do to produce his suspension, regardless. Um, <clears throat> According to him, uh, the sequence of events is that um, he had some tackiness on his hands. It's a little clumpy, in his words, from Sweat and Rosin. Uh, following the bottom of the second, because he told him to wash it off, he did. He used uh, some rubbing alcohol. After the third, because he told him that his hand was too sticky and to wash his hands again, and then to reapply rosin, uh, Scherzer did it again. Um, and uh told him to get a new glove because there was from his hands there was some transfer of uh too much rosin in his glove he did it got a new glove 
uh, took the field for the fourth inning, said that he washed his hands prior to the fourth and in front of an MLB official, and then in front of that same official applied, reapplied rosin and sweat. Um, and so he got checked again. And when he got checked the, I don't know, fourth time, his hand was still too sticky. Um, and essentially, the the argument is that from Scherzer, he's saying, I'm abiding by the rules. I'm only using sweat and rosin. Uh, and I think for Cuzzy and other umpires, they essentially said, like, this is, we've been doing checks now for multiple years. This is the stickiest I've ever seen uh a pitcher's hand or you know whatever part of their body i so my perspective is that i tend to think that it's not just sweat and rosin and even if it is i think that clearly like the uh, same thing that he's doing with the pitch clock like he's he's manipulating it uh I'm interested to to hear what y'all think about, I don't know, this whole situation. Yeah, it's, um, you know, not as dire as Oakland, but it's, it's a no-winner situation, which is kind of annoying. I think you're right. I can't speak to, like, whether it's anything more than rosin, but I, I feel like there's no doubt that Max was pushing the boundaries uh, as, as he does. And... and Part of the reason that this was a whole thing was that Phil Cuzzy, I think, is the might be the only umpire to actually eject a player for sticky substances since the memo, the famous memo in um, I think it was June 2021. I was actually at the very first ejection in 2021. Uh, it was Hector Santiago pitching for the Mariners. You remember that, Mikey? I sure fucking do. That was that was so <laughs> that was wild. The first one. <laughs> That was the first yeah. one I think I was at. I was at that game. And uh, later in the season, he tossed Caleb Smith for more or less the same thing. And I think in Santiago's case, it was also I kind of bought it really wasn't like he, he was trying to follow the rules and it was early on and he didn't or something like that. Or I don't know, he missed the memo or something like that. It was I don't know. But anyway, so people are kind of like, oh, this guy, this is just an overzealous umpire who has it out for the players, which you know, knowing umpires, knowing the way MLB works and umpires typically adversarial relationship to players. Um, <laughs> I think it's very possible. I mean, these guys and Cuzzy is a name whose name comes up a lot. You know, there's maybe like 10 or 15 umpires whose names I recognize, and it's rarely ever for a good thing. Uh, at the same time, we've all seen the, the quote unquote inspections that the umpires do as pitchers walk off the mound, both on TV and in person. Um, if you've been to games, it's not an inspection. They do like a tap down that makes tap a tap down. They make a pat down that, I mean, it's not one. There, There's no checking at all. So, I mean, does he, is he maybe a little bit over aggressive or is he really maybe looking for trouble? Maybe, maybe, but it also strikes me that it's very possible that other umpires are just not doing this, and he's the only one who's actually take it ser taking it seriously, which, I don't know, take that for what you will, but everyone's just, everyone's everyone's taking it a little bit too far. Just calm the hell down. 
feel like following the yeah. rules at this point. It's been it's been two years. You've had two years to adjust. It might not be great, but you know, I don't think this should be causing controversy anymore. I I have I have kind of trouble believing that Scherzer with his you know he he hasn't really thrown hard for the past few years uh he's now below average in terms of fastball velo and yet ranks nearly 90th percentile in fastball spin um we know that there is a fairly strong relationship between velocity and spin rate and one way to you know spin the ball more is to uh apply tack so I think, I don't know, pretty much in line with what you're saying. I think it's a good thing that they're enforcing and like actually taking it seriously because it, it, it really, the, the, the pat downs really do remind me of that, the video of that guy who I think works at a baseball stadium and is just like really lazily like taps, you know, basically <laughs> tapping people on their bodies just, and then just letting them, you know, staring into it's space. like a meme, yeah. right? It really, um, it really is sometimes. So I think I think Scherzer's been yeah, and obviously like we are, I, I, not even we. I am speculating, but I, I I think he's been doing this for years. And like, if it is sweat and rosin, then he's gotten really good at abiding by the rules and and really manipulating them. Um, I also have a hard time believing that you can get sweat and rosin like that tacky uh, without doing you know whatever to it. Um, but I think we'll, we'll know, um, you know, when he's back in 10 games, uh, if his spin falls by 300, uh, RPMs, then he probably was, uh, you know, at the very least really manipulating, uh, the, the current set of rules. So, um, I don't know. He's just <laughs> such a red ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He did say last year that he is going to bend like manipulate the rule as much as he can so literally and i, just, I don't know it's funny yeah it it is and sd sd you made a good point the other day too that he in particular because of you know cba negotiations and his role in the players union he in particular has a very very adversarial relationship with major league baseball and you know, mm-hmm. he's pro I mean, he knows what he's doing. He's, you know, he's bending the rules. He's going to say, fuck you. That's his attitude, you know? So, um, yeah. But at the end of the day, like you said, Mikey, it's kind of a, you know, ball don't lie. Numbers are there, you know, can't really, can't really hide it. So like you said, I think, and, and I tend, I tend to agree with you, honestly. And part of the reason yeah. that it's hard to agree with him is that there is, there's a little bit of an AJ Hinch or, you know, Rafael Palmero aspect to it where you can't just vigorously deny stuff and then get caught for and then get caught for it. Like, you, like, it's not a good look. Doesn't get you the benefit. <laughs> of doubt, so unless. Yeah. So <laughs> unless I mean, yeah, we'll see, I guess. Right, so maybe the, this is a good time for a little little ad break and then we'll come back and talk about our, all of our writing for the last week beep and we're back (laughs) uh okay so who wants to go first we all wrote articles this week that we're going to talk about in depth 
give it some time to <laughs> was a, Mikey. I saw your message in the in the top just now. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> it distracted me because funny word. It is. <laughs> um, but why don't I go first so I can you yeah. know get a little focus because you can see me going left and right right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so up at fangraphs.com yesterday yesterday was friday so whatever that date is i wrote a piece about catchers throwing dudes out this year i preface the actual analysis by saying like this is the most exciting thing for a catcher to do on defense like it it just is um most of what you do as a catcher throughout a game is you you just want the pitcher to feel comfortable, honestly. like You try to block everything. You try to make sure that they're comfortable with their pitch mix. You talk to them if they seem stressed. And so when you get a chance, you see someone take off and you can throw them out, it's like, all right, let me, let me go crazy right now. Um, so I think it's, that, it's exciting in terms of fun, the increase in stolen base rate. Like It's fun for catchers. It's fun for runners, fun, fun for fans, but... There's also going to be a piece that means catchers who throw dudes out above at an above average rate are going to have more defensive value there than they have in say like the last ten years. I think I was looking at the 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 pace compared to last year, like what we're on pace for in terms of stolen bases, and I think the number if we hold that the eighty one percent success rate is going to be something like three thousand six hundred stolen bases compared to last year which is like 2,500. So there's going to be a lot more stolen bases this year, which means more chances for catchers to save outs, save runs. And I basically went in to the next part and was like Gabriel Moreno and Wilson Contreras, two dudes throwing out runners like crazy. Contreras has always been good at throwing out runners because he averages like a 97, no, sorry, not 97, 87 mile per hour throw down a second, which is just absurd. And so he's already thrown out a bunch of guys this year. Gabriel Moreno's thrown out a bunch of guys this year. And they're adding a new piece to their defensive value. And if they continue to be just better than everyone else at it, you have to sort of reevaluate who they are in terms of their total value. And for Contreras, it's interesting because he wasn't a good framer. He wasn't a good blocker, like visually and statistically. He's not... He's around average with both of those. But if he can suddenly throw a bunch of guys out now, then he'll age better as a catcher. And then for Moreno, he does everything. And so he goes from doing two things really well, catching, uh, framing, blocking, to doing three things really well. So I don't know if you guys have some follow-up thoughts to that, but I think it's very, very fun. I think this is a really good opportunity to see how much of a freak that JT Real Muto is. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you look at his, his arm, like has one of the strongest arms, one of the quickest exchange exchanges, um, yep. one of the fastest pop times, actually, I think the fastest pop time. Yes. He has the, the fastest pop time. Pop time. <laughs> yeah. And like by a, like the difference between him and Connor Wong, who's second, is the difference between Connor Wong and Cal, uh, Wilson Contreras, who's seventh. So, um, like, just pretty easily in terms of uh, 
throwing runners out like uh, you know the the traits to get there uh at 32 years old like really doing it um which i thought was yeah pretty cool and looking at the numbers and i think that this is especially an interesting conversation when you think about um when you think about like abs when you think about um what does that stand for automatic balls and (laughs) strikes automated balls and strikes yeah yeah in my head i was like yeah automated strike zone and then (laughs) abs abs yeah um but yeah um i think with with the the impending institution of of um of abs uh these things yeah become a lot more you know important and framing obviously becomes less important so i don't know it's kind of cool to think about like i'm not a baseball purist but it would be i think I don't know if it'd be a bummer. Like, I don't, I just don't know what it would look like. I don't know what teams would do, but I hope the art of catching never goes away. And I know that SD is, uh, very biased when it comes to, to catching. Um, but you know, just like throwing like RSD Aquino behind the plate and just having him throw motherfuckers out at <laughs> second base with like no That's catching absurd. skills. It would be crazy. Um, be very funny. But yeah, I mean, this is a pretty classic Fangraphs article. I thought it was a fun read. It's nice and quick, too. Thanks, Mikey. Yeah. Yeah, everything everything he just said. There's another angle, too, that I think would be interesting to explore that I'm honestly not sure if... I, I think this information is out there somewhere, but there's it's not, it's not just catchers, too. Pitchers are having to uh, make a lot of adjustments too. And suddenly there's a lot of value in being quick to the pa- quick to the plate and being able to adjust your, uh, your tempo and your timing and know when to use your disengagements to keep runners honest and make sure they can't get a jump on you. Uh, and some pitchers are probably going to make that adjustment more easily than others. Uh, and there's going to be now more value as kind of what you mm-hmm. need there's going to be more value in guys who can, especially with the pitch clock, who are able to well well adapt to to that stuff. And I don't think it's like significant enough that you would be like, oh man, this is really, uh, this is really over the top. Even though I'm not, I'm still really not a fan of limiting the disengagements at two. But uh, yeah, I'm interested to see if there's information on that or how that might affect i mean i'm sure it shows up in stolen base numbers if you have times to the plate so i don't know anyone know if that's that's available no so i I don't believe it is uh there mikey am i wrong in that or i think if anyone would have it it would be in one of the like legacy leaderboards on bp baseball prospectus um but i still kind of doubt it I guarantee you the data is out there somewhere, but I just don't know if it's publicly available. Damn you, Tango. Give us the, give us the data. Yeah. So <laughs> right. that, that's like, maybe I can end this by saying a few things that I want on Savant in like the very near future. Like they should be on right now, if I'm being honest. is The first thing is time to plate, of course. That would be very valuable. The second thing that probably plays into having that, so it's the result of having the first thing, is throwing runs in general across Mm. for catchers for infielders for outfielders like i don't know how that's not a thing either 
and it makes it would be very helpful for catchers for because someone like JTR Muto, who has already given up, I think, nearly 15 steals, but it's because Zach Wheeler slowed to the plate, Aaron Nola slowed to the plate. Like those dudes, just they don't really have a slide step. Um. So yeah, I I used to plea to them to add these things, um, and we're almost four years since then, and. We've gotten a few things lately, especially with the the blocking runs saved and other things for catchers. I think Tango has something about accuracy coming, but he said that about blocking runs four years ago. So it might be a while till we get it, but the data's there. And we do have like uh, on fan graphs, like our stolen bases and mm-hmm. our arm. I, I don't know if it's even tracked for like arm stuff, but like, yeah, if you look at who's the best at, you know, when someone's trying to swipe a, a base, it's Rio Muto far and away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think I was almost going to say more data is better. That's not true. Um, but this data would be better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, Mikey, do you want to talk about Johan Oviedo? Yeah, so um, I'm going to try and pull it up. Sorry for my loud keyboard. Um, Yeah, he is someone who um, I feel like every once in a while people will slide in my DMs be like, yo, like this guy's interesting and you should write about it. And I'll be like, yeah, maybe. I feel like a lot of the time they are interesting and I will write about them. And this was the case. Um, This is a really good example of um stuff plus not being great uh if you ask stuff plus and maybe let's go consult it now uh oviedo's not a good pitcher um he has i think about and it depends on what stuff plus model you're looking at but about average stuff if i remember correctly um and if you ask me that is crazy um i don't know how you could throw a hard 80s slider and uh you know a firm ish curveball in like the low 80s and and throw like 97 like i don't know how you could be below average and i actually think that he is more below average uh and yet he is um he okay and just to to cite you know stuff plus model 89 overall stuff plus uh his fastball is 83 sinker 94 slider 94 curveball 95 change up shit um he basically from last year took (laughs) took his slider um he's throwing it a lot harder uh about two and a half ticks harder it's nearly nearly 90 he's he's thrown it as hard as 93 which is really fucking hard for a slider um and it's really just leaning on his secondaries more like he really can't it's a little troubling how how little feel he has for his fastball um and so he's basically said you know even from his his pretty significant uptick in in secondary usage last year where he was throwing about as many sliders as fastballs around 40 percent uh he said i'm gonna throw even more secondaries so now um he's about 60 percent 
plus uh, secondaries and uh, down towards like below 40 percent um, fastballs. And now he's, you know, like it's not always sexy, but I think he's he's pretty interesting. Um, and I'm actually homies with Justice De Los Santos, who is Filipino and is the MLB beat writer for um for the pirates and uh i don't have he said he got some interesting quotes from oviedo i haven't heard them yet because i don't know if he reshaped the slider like i don't know if he if he did anything with the grip or or there's any like mental cue that he adjusted but uh he really really carved up the cardinals lineup and i think they are the most interesting lineup in baseball um struck out 10 so I think an elite slider, good curveball, and throws the fastball enough to not be a slider or curveball. <laughs> uh, keep hitters on their toes. So, um, yeah, elevating the ball a little more, changing eye levels. Uh, I think he's become a good pitcher. So I'm while you've been talking, I pulled up a savant query because I just wanted to see his sliders. And I will say that he's got clean-ass mechanics. Like, he's probably... If I was to guess, he probably holds his velo pretty well later into starts. And he rips his slider. Like, it's nasty. I'm looking at a whiff across the zone against Dirksen Profar. And it just, like, it wipes out. It's nasty. Yeah, so you're definitely right about the velo. Um at least through, you know, this very small sample that we have, uh, through each inning is like 96, 96, 96 and a half, 96 and a half, 97, 96.7, 96 and a half. So he, he holds Velo really well. And yeah, just like a super tight shape. Um, if you're throwing a slider that like, I've always thought if you can throw a, a hard ish cutter, like if you can, or slider, uh, 87 and above. I especially don't think that you need, you know, a, a like a fastball or a sinker. Um, and obviously, there are guys that like McCullers who will throw like 50% curveballs. Um, but you know, even he th- still throws a, a fair amount of um, of fastballs of uh, both shapes. So. I think he's pretty interesting. I think that he could probably, if he wanted to, throw 50% uh, sliders. And, like, he's actually seems like starting to toy with that Um, with, I don't know, 20% curveballs. He's super interesting to me. Super, super interesting to me. And I think, Hayes, you said that you watched him pitch uh, a couple starts ago against the Red Sox. Yeah, no, not not live, but on on TV. It was um against the White Sox. Uh, the Sox were in Pittsburgh. It was the second start of the year, and it was totally surprising. I, I obviously hadn't watched his first start. He gave up four four earned and four and two thirds against Boston, and then he came out and shut down the White Sox for for six and two thirds innings. And it was not you know as a lot of people were kind of thinking off of the name recognition, like who is this nobody who's shutting them down? He came up, came out. Pumping 97 on the fastball. I was like, whoa. Filling up the zone with those curveballs and sliders. And one thing that I noticed, and I was just, I was just looking at his pitch mix that I think is interesting, is how 
Well, first of all, it's just interesting in general how he clearly commands, I think, probably the slider and curveball better than the fastball. That's usually, that's pretty, pretty unusual for a pitcher in general. Um, and one thing I, I kind of went back and looked at some of uh, some of his outing against the White Sox and uh, looking at his pitch mix, he, he was mostly, he mostly throws the fastball early in the counts when he does throw it. He's a lot of the time, because he has this ability, I think, to, you know, as you talked about to fill up the zone with breaking balls and you don't even know which breaking ball because he's splitting up the usage they're two distinct quality pitches uh he's he's throwing them in situations where hitters are not necessarily looking for a breaking ball in the zone or if they are they're not really even you know if you hit it in the right spot you're not even necessarily going to make great contact on it because they're like you said he's ripping it uh and Looking at his pitch chart, even though he doesn't have good control of the fastball, uh, he still doesn't miss a lot down the middle. When he misses, he misses high and out of the zone, or misses far out of the zone um, on the other side of the plate. He's not putting his fastball in a position to get hammered, and when he does execute it, it's 97, 98 miles an hour, and you know that sets up that sets up the rest of your pitches really nicely. So there's he. It's an interesting combination of things he's got going for him, and. Um, yeah, he's he's definitely, I agree, someone to keep an eye on. Yeah, and I think the last things that I'll say about him are, one, his curveball and slider. So when you're just combining the strike percentage of curveballs and sliders, all pitchers, at least like qualified pitchers, uh, his strike percentage is 74.3%. That's the highest of any pitcher. Um, and obviously, like... I don't know. That is only pitchers who throw a slider or curveball or both. But that's that's I think, you know, uh really interesting. And yeah, his stuff plus um or uh the 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 different models um both of them basically say yeah, he can command his curveball and slider um about 50 grade about average, which is good enough. Uh like a, a tick above average. Um Last thing is, yeah, he misses arm side, up and arm side a lot with his forcing fastball, which I think is fine, especially if he's throwing sliders like that or um, strikes like this with his secondaries. He has, according to, I think, both Pitch Info and Savant thrown a couple sinkers. That's something to keep an eye on, not only uh, in terms of pitch tunneling and just like his slider tunneling really well with a sinker, um, but also... You know, guys tend to be able to to command. Like sometimes it just feels more natural to throw a two seamer than a four seamer. So um, I think that's a, a quiet little thing to watch. Uh, and actually, I lied. The last thing that I'll say is that he just pitched against the Rockies and he pitched in or at Coors Field and did pretty well. Um, I think that, you know, his his repertoire is probably one that is less affected than a lot of pitchers because of the nature of like his his slider um but still i think it's impressive to go in there and really shove and obviously uh the rockies are not good but they do have chris bryant <laughs> and uh yeah one earned run over six yeah yeah so um yeah he's someone that that's really exciting me right now yeah the the one thing that you said that i keep thinking of is just talking about dudes who should be throwing more than 50% breaking balls. 
And I think it's funny that you both chose to write about these different people in the same week because Clark Schmidt is one person who I think should just sell out on using his curveball and like fast sweeper. He throws a sweeper almost like I think it's 86.8 on average. So he throws it pretty hard and then his curveball has always been his best pitch. And he's wrote about his release point. So Hayes, I'll let you take it away. But I just think that before I do, I think that he's just someone who should throw his breaking balls more. But what what else do you have to say? Yeah, I wrote about him earlier this week, and there were there were some nice expectations for him from some coming into the season. Um, he was nominally the Yankees' number two starter with Luis Severino and Frankie Montas, and uh, even Nestor Cortez not fully available on day one. And there was a lot of hubbub uh, when he came into camp with a cutter. Uh, he had thrown for most of his career the sinker as his primary fastball. Uh, and it was not getting very good results. I'm not sure what its stuff plus is off the bat, uh, but I, you know, I think it should be, you know, the better than the results it's gotten. But uh, you still can't throw it that much. Like you said, SD, he really needs to be throwing. He, he threw it 22 percent of the time last year. He's throwing it 19 percent of the time this year. You got to you got to cut that down because it's been consistently getting hammered since he made it to the big leagues. Uh, and has been kind of up and down. There's a lot of hubbub about adding a cutter in the offseason. He had thrown a four-seam fastball previously, um, you know, typically in the teens as far as usage goes, uh, not too far off the degree to which he was throwing the sinker. He's replaced the four-seamer with the cutter. Now, the cutter has gotten hammered. It has got a 696 Woba against and it's the second most used pitch. It's 24%. 494 expected Woba. It has been, he, he can't, he can't help but throw it right down the middle. You look at his, uh, a pitch chart of the hits he's given up this year, and he's given up 22 hits in 14 and a third innings, including 14 earned runs. It's an 879 earned run average. Uh, he, he can't help but throw the cutter and the sinker just right down the middle. <laughs> um, and part of the reason for that, I would imagine, is his release point has deviated once again, uh, both vertically and horizontally. It's it's shifted around on, you know, kind of a month-by-month, year-by-year basis a little bit in the past, but typically not at the same time. He's he's releasing the ball slightly differently. And the thing about adding a cutter is that uh, you're training your wrist to do something different. Instead of throwing a four-seam fastball where... You typically have your natural release. You're not trying to manipulate the spin of the ball. Uh, that's why a fastball is usually, you know, the easiest pitch to throw for a strike. You're trying to put a little bit of gyro spin on the ball. So you're trying to angle the spin a little bit to the side uh, to the point where, you know, if you turn it all the way to the side and you end up with like a football spiral, you end up with the slider. So you're not manipulating it that much, but you're doing just enough to get it somewhere in between. Uh, you know, typically closer to the four seam side, but sometimes it, you know, there's a wide spread of them, which is why, like you said earlier, Mikey, pitch models don't necessarily capture cutters all that well. Um, but what that has also done, it seems like, has added a lot of cut to his sinker, which makes a bad pitch already a lot worse. Um, his active spin rate on the sinker was in the 70s uh, 
prior to the season. It's down to 59% now, which tracks. If you're adding a cutter, like I said, you're training your wrist to manipulate the ball like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was kind of residually bleeding uh, into the sinker and, you know, making both of his fastballs worse, pretty much. Uh, so, yeah, he's got, if he's going to rebound, I think SD, you're 100% right. It's just going to be by throwing throwing the breaking balls more, uh, which have also not been very good this year, but have gotten good results in, in the past. I mean, everything's getting hit this year. But even now, as Curveball has a uh, a 138 Woba against. Uh, so hopefully that's an adjustment that will be made. I mean, it's kind of disappointing that, you know, you want the cutter to be good, but be interesting to see if he kind of cuts it as a sunk cost and really ramps up that, that breaking ball usage, or even just cuts the sinker. But he's got to he's got to make some kind of change. Yeah, he's been it's been frustrating to watch him pitch so poorly. This is the worst he's ever pitched in his career in the big leagues. He had he I mean, he hasn't really pitched that much. His the most he's ever pitched was last year when he was pretty good. Um, But he's definitely got to be struggling. Mikey, do you have anything to add on Clark Schmidt? I don't know if you've watched any of his starts. Um, no, I think in terms of, I, I tend to agree that like, we see a lot with guys that, that add cutters. Yeah. Um, I think more than any pitch, the way that like Clark Schmidt, uh, has shown really, really strong supination talent. So it makes sense that, um, you know, when you think about his pitch profile to like really lean into it. And when I say that, um, that essentially means like he, he shows really strong feel for being able to, to rip off a, a breaking pitch. And I think, uh, let me just look real quick. I think he's up in the, like he, he nearly averages 3000, uh, RPMs with, uh, his curveball and his sweeper, yeah. his, his cutter's really high. Um, so yeah, you should lean into the cut, and he has, and I think that 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 cut that he's added, like, uh, yeah, that's added about ten percent of of gyro uh, to his sinker. I don't know if that is inherently a bad thing. Like, I haven't I haven't looked at him enough to know whether, uh, like how much of a seam shifted, you know, wake guy he kind of is like a sinker is. Um, but like the thing that we see with changing, uh, spin efficiency on pitches is like, that's how you can pretty easily fuck up a pitch that has, you know, seam shifted wake qualities and kind of knock it off. It's, um, kind of the optimal, um, you know, kind of interaction between like seam orientation and the gyro angle, which is really just the spin efficiency. Um, so I, I'm not sure if like, if that's what's going on, I'm sure that because the ball is moving differently, uh, because it is spinning differently, like that's affecting his command, but I tend Mm -hmm. to think that he'll get it dialed in. Um, and I think that his, his repertoire is really compelling. Um, I'm biased. I really like the kind of side to side guys that, you know, with a lot of um, supination or, or uh, pronation or supination. <laughs> um, but I do tend to think that the best version of 
Clark Schmidt is someone that throws a lot of cutters, sinkers, and sweepers. And I think that the the curveball to me is is more of a I wouldn't say a show me, but more of a get me over pitch where it's like, you know, he's tossing it in for for free strikes because as is, as you know, he uses it now, like he you know, he throws it for a ball 40% of the time. Um, which is like probably strategic. Um so I, I still think like, yeah, he's getting beat up right now, but he does throw a lot of strikes. And I think he, by when I look at his stuff, I think he's good. Um, so I'm excited to see how kind of how this unfolds. Um, I don't know if he'll make any tweaks or what, but um, even like, I don't think his command needs to be that great for him to to really be good so yeah maybe maybe the the thing is like to to throw more get me over curve balls uh um to really let you know other stuff play up mm-hmm. yeah that i agree with almost everything you said there mikey you got like you pretty much hit him spot on with the way that his pitches have changed this year and why the sinker is getting so crushed as Hayes said but the one thing that i do want to mention is the curveball is the highest stuff plus great well it was it was the highest i know that we were just talking about uh why stuff plus can be misleading or work in one direction good or poorly but going into the year he had the highest stuff plus on his knuckle curve in all of baseballs and if you've been following clark schmidt through his career it's actually always been his best pitch um so I actually want him to throw it more. I want him to throw it, try and throw it in the zone more too. But I, I to backtrack a little bit, I, I agree with you. I've always thought that he was really good, and I thought he should have been a starter with them almost all of last year, even though he wasn't. Um, but yeah, I, I did just want to mention that on the curveball because it's nasty. It's it's reminiscent of Dylan Batances' curveball, which was just the best, and I miss Dylan. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if there's any... Yeah. Uh, and y'all would know better than me, but if there's any release stuff going on here, too. Because um, that's it's well, a pretty Hayes easy way to... Hayes definitely does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that's... So, go ahead. Finish your, finish your thought. Uh, I mean, yeah, really, like, uh, a couple things I often look at are just, like, where guys are locating vertically and uh and also like where they're releasing from in terms of like arm angle yeah uh that's partially i mean more so than the quality of the stuff that's really the the concern is that uh i'm not sure the command is there because i mean maybe things will settle in but i don't think I don't necessarily think the stuff is quite good enough outside of the curveball. I don't necessarily think the um you know movement deviation is necessarily there for him to get away with it consistently if he's not hitting his spots in the zone because we're just seeing we're seeing right now what happens when he's leaving it over the middle. When he's leaving it over the middle, he doesn't quite still have the velo to get away with it like some pitchers would and Part of the reason that I focused on adding the cutter as it does make sense 
you know, but if it's affecting his release point, if it's affecting the way he's actually like, you know, the arm angle is changing. Uh, and if you're getting, a, you know, you're making pretty significant changes. He had the same, he had pretty much the same release point, his first three appearances in the majors. And I'm just not, it concerns me. Sometimes a change in release point is okay. I'm not sure it's not more of a detriment than a bonus with, with the other stuff. So, I mean, I would, I would definitely throw, I think, I just don't know if I can lean so much on the cutter if he can't do anything but throw right down the middle, which is what's happening a lot right now. And maybe that'll change. I hope, you know, it, it's, it's something that can definitely develop with more repetitions, but I need to see it happen too. Yeah, we'll see. I hope he pitches well. He's going to get plenty of chances in the rotation this year with the just rotation of injuries going on. And yeah, so I mean, he's going to get the opportunity to adjust. But yeah, any concluding thoughts from either of you on Clark Schmidt? Um, I really I think the last thing is uh yeah, if you look at like his spin-based uh, movement direction. Like, yeah, he has moved from uh, with his sinker from like 115 last year to 1 o'clock this year. Um, but also, like, it's not like that's unprecedented. Like, he, he was mm-hmm. doing that in 2021, too. So, I don't know. Something to watch. I think this is all really interesting stuff. I'm biased. <laughs> Well, okay, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, everyone has their biases. It's impossible not to. But, so we're going to do something that we haven't done yet in either of our previous episodes. So we're just going to close out the show by getting one note from each of us on our teams of fandom. Since that is the original way we came to this podcast. So, Mikey, do you want to go first? What do you got to say on the M's? Oh, man. I just think, like, so the Mariners, and I'll try to keep it short, but the Mariners are ranked first in pitcher war. Um, And I just think that there are so many fascinating things that are happening uh, with them. Um, Seems like, I guess, to kind of keep it brief, Luis Castillo's fastball is riding more than ever, and he's getting he's got the depth back on his changeup. Um, and it seems like they've really like, even though some guys have kind of struggled, um, seems like they've kind of maintained like the the development of Los Bomberos, where uh, Justin Topa, uh, Trevor Gott, and Gabe Spire have really um, been three like relatively older guys this year that um they've been able to um the mariners have been able to to help them realize their potential um so i think on the pitching side uh really really interesting stuff happening over there hey is anything on the white Sox? oh you know they're a dumpster fire uh they're in roughly (laughs) depending on who you ask Depending on who you're at, who you're asking, they're in month maybe thirteen to 
to 21 of being a dumpster fire. Uh, there is an argument that, uh, you know, it dates back to the moment they hired Tony La Russa, uh, which it probably does. And his ghost has not left the clubhouse. The vibes someone someone said on, on Twitter. As a comment on the Trident that, you know, that kind of organic, joyous energy that lifts a young team. And makes them better, you know, you can't. You can't force that. It's something that exists organically. And the White Sox had that. The White Sox had that for a little while. And Tony La Russa came in, and they didn't. And you can't really get that back. So, you know, the White Sox organization is in a state. They're 7-13 as, as of this podcast, um, as of this recording. And if you work for Jerry Reinsdorf, you have some of the best job security in the world. That being said, I, there is a point. There might even be a point where things get so crushingly disappointing that maybe a GM change is forced sooner rather than later. We can only, we can only dream, but uh, that's, it's pretty clear that a total, a total house cleaning is the only thing at this point that's going to turn around the direction of the White Sox franchise as of April 22nd, 2023. Esty, tell us something about the Yankees. So the one thing that I'm paying attention to as I've been watching them this year is Anthony Volpe's stride. He I think he uses a two-strike approach as well, but he in his leg kick, he ends up opening up his left foot relative to his back foot, and some people would describe that as stepping in the bucket, where you just stride and you sort of end up from having your toe pointed to the first baseman as a right-handed hitter to having your toe more facing the second baseman, and it opens your hip up. And one thing that uh, I think, I mean, this is well said everywhere, but what does what stepping in the bucket does is it makes it a little bit harder on your bat path to get to low and away breaking balls and then up and in fastballs because it sort of shoots your barrel backwards to the point where you can get under pitches in the bottom of the zone really well from like the inner, like middle height, inner third to the bottom of the strike zone to pretty much cover anything except the outer third. And I've seen Volpe hit the end of the bat on so many sliders or have good impact on a fastball, but leave it like too high in the air for someone who doesn't have a max exit velo above like 112. So he doesn't have that much room for error in terms of launch angle range. And so I think, I should say that I think he's a dog and he'll adjust because he's been impressive everywhere else, literally everywhere else in his game. But I am a proponent of striding closed for pretty much anybody. Um, like It helps you stay on the ball to the opposite field and not open up your hips too much on inside pitches. Some like One really good example of this is Jose Altuve and Mike Trout. So I, I'm very interested to see if he will make that adjustment because there's no questions it's impacting him or if he can do something else and keep that to get his bat path going so that he can actually hit low and away breaking balls in the strike zone. Our Filipino king. Hell yeah. <laughs> can I say one thing? Yeah. Of course. Keenan Middleton. I, I need to hear about him, Hayes. 
He he looks better than just about everybody that Rick Hahn has ever given a multi-year contract to. Um, he's I just, back to pump. Uh, I, I, I don't know when. I don't know where his velo sat the last couple of years, but you know TJ takes it out of you. He's got it fully back. Him and uh, the other name to watch is Gregory Santos, who was claimed off waivers, I think, by the Sox uh, over the winter. Who's also uh, throwing throwing high nineties with a pretty filthy slider and uh, throwing it in the zone enough or throwing in the right spots out of the zone to uh, to you know get some strikeout a lot of strikeouts and weak contact. So uh, yeah, the White Sox have one of the more expensive bullpens in baseball, and Keenan Middleton and Gregory Santos <laughs> are whoop, tearing it up. And I am not being sarcastic; they're they're actually good. You're right. <laughs> there's there's a I think on his Instagram when he was with the Mariners in 2021 he posted something along the lines of respect to all those who came before me, but like no one has like been as much of a dog as me, essentially saying like he was going to (laughs) be one of the best Mariners relievers ever. Uh, His, his strikeout minus walk percentage was (laughs) 3.6%. And uh, he he posted (laughs) 0.0 war over 31 innings. Uh, incredible troll <laughs> it's i it's just no I, so, so i subtle. i love i love <laughs> keenan middleton and also thought he had that dog in him uh but yeah he was just not i think not throwing hard enough it part, part of what's interesting to me is aside from his release point and i i think that must be the key uh he hasn't really changed much besides velo because like even from the previous year, 2020, uh, his velo is down a touch. So I really hope he shoves. I hope he's the best reliever in the White Sox bullpen, not named Liam Hendricks. Um, I agree. And just think that that shit was so funny. <laughs> Man. What a way to close Everything. out. That's, that's good that's, stuff. Yeah. Man. Man. I love the overconfidence. Oh, imagine in NBA, you could just do that where you pick someone up off waivers. Like, I know this happens, but this hardly ever happens. Like, it's very, very rare in NBA or in the NBA. I believe the the is appropriate there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it's crazy. Like, the knowledge of skill and like things that actually play are just so much more well known in other sports it's really it's cool there's like that the 10 day contract in the nba yeah yeah also seems like it's rare i feel like it can